Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be with us this morning and we trust that you are here. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in your Son, our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know how you handle your online life. I hope you handle it with care. Um, I've heard persuasive arguments, actually, that Christians need to be involved online, that Twitter and Facebook, for instance, are the modern town square, and that if we cede those spaces to non-Christians, then Christian ideas will not find any purchase in public. I have a friend, in fact, who makes this argument even more passionately for pastors, that I should be actively involved online. I find that I just can't do it, though. Uh, my social media accounts are basically uh, Grace Anglican Church hype accounts. Um, I retweet Grace Anglican Church tweets and I reshare Grace Anglican Church stuff. Part of it is that I know myself. Um, I'm the kind of person who would post something and then start checking back every five minutes to see how many likes it's receiving. I found myself a while back thinking about not enjoying my life, but what parts of my life might turn into good posts on social media. So I sort of had to stop that altogether. I needed to protect myself from myself. Um, But another part of it is that I don't like the online conversation. I'll admit I do sort of lurk around sometimes. I do have the accounts. Like I said, I'm a Grace Anglican Church hype account, but I do have the accounts. I can scroll around sometimes, and I do more than I'd like to admit, and I can see what's going on, and one of the overriding things I see going on online is Christians being called hypocrites. Recently, it has to do mostly with the LGBTQ plus agenda and who should be allowed to love each other. The word love is thrown around a lot. Who should be able to have sex with one another? Who should be able to get married? And anyone who suggests that God made sex exclusively for a man and a woman united in marriage, but who also wants to say something like, God is love, you know, like we Christians do, that person is immediately labeled a hypocrite. Now, as a church, we claim to be biblically orthodox or faithful to the Bible, which to many people in the world is just a synonym for hypocrite, right? You've heard it. You claim to espouse the love and grace of Jesus Christ. But then you want to impose all these moral rules on people, claiming that they're God's rules. Why shouldn't two men or two women or that group over there or those straight people who aren't married or even, say, the pornography industry. Why shouldn't any of these people be able to enjoy the beauties of love and sex? You Christians are so legalistic and puritanical. 
What about all the love and grace? So I've been thinking this week a lot about the relationship between love and grace and rules and commandments. And I think Jesus's discussion of the law in Matthew chapter five, the part of the Sermon on the Mount that we read from this morning, can help us understand how these things can live and work together. Rules and grace. Law and love. And it can help us perhaps even talk to our friends and family members or indeed maybe even our enemies who can't understand how we can believe what we believe. I want you to have something to say when someone calls you a hypocrite because love and grace and rules and commandments have always lived in a kind of tension. But it is, I believe, a tension that is understandable in Christ. Here's an example. When I was in college, one of the pressing personal holiness issues that my male Christian friends and I consistently dealt with was sexual purity. Jesus tells his followers in no uncertain terms to be pure, even in their minds and their thoughts. This happens just a few verses after our reading in Matthew 5. And my friends and I took this calling seriously. Our striving basically took the form of don't go too far physically with your girlfriend if you have one. And don't look at you know what kinds of websites on the internet. And this seemed to us at the time to take up all of our attention, all of our effort, all of our willpower. In fact, it seemed overwhelming to us then. And so we had to help each other, pray for each other, hold each other accountable to God's calling in our lives. Now, perhaps, obviously, this caused some friction in our lives. First of all, there's the friction with the world at large, the culture outside the family of faith. The world saw what we were doing then and sees this kind of Christian effort toward abstinence and purity now as hopelessly backward and even unhealthy. Sex is a natural part of life, they say. And these days, of course, they're even saying that it's an integral part of who you are. You don't even have an identity outside of your sexual expression. And even you white bread, boring, straight kids need to be doing it, by the way. It's not only how you find out who you really are, but how can you possibly know if you should get married to somebody unless you, you know, take them for a test drive first? You're doing yourself a disservice if you don't have sex before marriage. And these are the sorts of things that the world would say to us then, and to Christians now, who were and are saving ourselves for God-ordained marriage. But that was just the friction from outside the family, from outside the church, outside the faith. And so we felt we could band together and resist it. But of course, there's a tension from inside the family too, inside the Christian life of faith. A friction between rules... And good news, between the struggle for holiness on the one hand and the assurance of the grace of God on the other, between the law and the gospel. Listen, for instance, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the purest good news. Saved by grace through faith, not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not the result of works, of obedience to some law, some rules, so that no one may boast. So what does a passage like Ephesians 2 say to me and my college friends? What about all that effort expended on praying for each other, supporting each other, cajoling each other, striving for purity, holding each other accountable to God's law? Was that time and effort wasted or worse? Was it counterproductive? Was it actually taking away from the gospel? Was it legalism? You can see how things can get confused. You can see how you might come to believe, as I did for a time, that the gospel renders all effort as a bad thing. That the struggle for purity is a negative. That it's a merely a catalog of the allegedly legalistic ways that law-loving, holier-than-thou Christians were making people feel bad. All of a sudden, talking about God's good plan for love and sex and marriage as laid out in the Bible and striving to uphold it seemed bad. If you believed in the gospel... Telling someone about God's good design for sexual intimacy seemed somehow off limits. You weren't allowed to do it. It was legalism or hypocrisy. Well, this just, by the way, is at the bottom of almost all of the current ex-evangelical movement that you may have heard about. People running away from their so-called legalistic backgrounds, claiming that they're running to the gospel, but actually running away from the church and the faith and Jesus Christ altogether. So deep breath. Let's recenter ourselves now. I said that the law and the gospel, that love and the rules can work together that they can coexist. Indeed, we need to let the Bible instruct us here. Because even though Ephesians 2 says so clearly that the gospel has nothing to do with works, the gospel nonetheless cannot mean that the struggle for holiness is a waste of time, or that it's taking a step backward, or that it's legalistic or hypocritical. I mean, listen now to Jesus preaching at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, as we just heard read this morning. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then, just in case you thought you might miss the point. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then our liturgy asks us to say, the gospel of the Lord, thanks be to God. Goodness gracious, that's in the Bible too. Be salty. Be a light to the world. Let your light, your good works shine so that people can see them. If you break a commandment, you'll be least. If you do the commandments, then you will be called great. This Jesus, would support our prayer group back in college and the struggle to avoid sexual temptation. This Jesus is in favor of purity and holiness. And yet, this is the same Jesus who would stand silent before his accusers, willingly going to a criminal's cross outside the city walls and shout, it is finished, as he died for the sins of the world freely giving his own righteousness to the unrighteous, to the sinners. This is the same Jesus who is the gift of God, which Ephesians says accomplishes your salvation, not by your works, but by grace. So the truth is, the biblical truth is that Jesus is the gift of God by which we are saved, and the one who calls us to lead lives of radical obedience and holiness. So let me read that section of Ephesians 2 to you again, the one I read a few minutes ago. But this time I'm going to read one more verse. I'm going to read that first part, which we can never forget. It makes all the difference. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. One more sentence. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now understood, in that order, a Jesus who calls us to good works can start to make sense. Jesus says, as we rehearse each week in the comfortable words, that the burdened and heavy laden can come to him for rest. His yoke, he promised, was easy and his burden light. But how can that be true if he calls us to be salt and light to the world? That sounds to me like a heavy burden. He calls us to honor our parents, to love our enemies. Doesn't that make Jesus' yoke heavy? And his burden, weighty. Well, it would be heavy. Except that on account of the gospel, you are not the one who bears it. 
Jesus bears it for you. This is how we understand the relationship of the law. Be salt. Be light to the world. Obey the commandments and teach others to do the same. This is how we understand the relationship of the law to the gospel, the good news that Christ came to save outside of anything you have done, are doing, or will ever do. This is how we can be a church that talks endlessly about the boundless love of Jesus and supports, for instance, a biblical design for God's plan for sexual purity. This is how we can relentlessly preach the finished work of Christ for sinners and desire and expend effort to be faithful to the order for life that God has set out in the scriptures. This is how we can say that God saves you completely outside what you do and that what you do totally matters. We can say all of that because as Ephesians proclaims, God has prepared good works for us. We are not on our own. We are not saved, turned loose, and commanded to do better. And we certainly are not saved on condition of our doing better. No, it is so much better than that. Inside the package of your free salvation is a new life and a relationship with God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and a set of good works that God has created especially for you. You are now, according to God's own promise, made new. In Christ Jesus, the law has done its killing work and Jesus has done his resurrecting work. And now God has made you a promise. This new creation of his, you will be salt to the earth. You will be a light to the world. You will strive to obey his commandments and call out in repentance when you fall short. As a church, we will teach each other by the guidance of the Holy Spirit how to do these things, how to be salt, how to be light, how to be obedient, always remembering that this obedience is itself a gift from God. Our loving a result of having first been loved in our sin by him. This is how Ephesians imagines that such obedience is possible. First, the people are reminded of the free nature of their salvation. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Do not forget this. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast ever. And then, only then, obedience comes from faith in God's gift to you. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. This pre-existing gift of Christ gives rise to the faith that results in obedience. In fact, this faith creates obedience. So it's not like you have some new capability now. No. 
You need the grace of Jesus Christ just as much now as ever. Every hour, every moment. This is why we come together every week. You do not have new abilities. What you are is a new creation. As Paul said, it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And his promise in the Sermon on the Mount, this sermon full of incredibly big law, his promise is that his life, now lived for you, fulfills that law. I have come, Jesus said, not to abolish, but to fulfill. And he gives that fulfillment to you. So, we seek to be what Christ calls us to be. Salt and light, doers of good works, faithful to all the commands of Scripture. We seek to do these things knowing two things. First, that the grace of God and the good news of Jesus Christ will be there with us when we are revealed to be the desperate sinners that we are. And second, that the grace of God and the good news of Jesus Christ is the only engine by which any kind of Christ-likeness is possible. Righteousness and obedience come in and through Christ alone. He has fulfilled the law and has given that fulfillment to you. And so now, we seek to live in it. This isn't legalism or hypocrisy. This is the Christian life. Helping each other to seek purity. Helping each other to seek faithfulness. Disciplining each other and calling each other to repentance. Feasting together at his table. Jesus makes you an extravagant promise that his good news will do everything by the enlivening work of his holy spirit and by the resurrecting power of almighty god by grace you have been saved through faith it is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them thanks be to God who in Christ has raised you from the dead and made you new amen